0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello there and thank you for downloading today's podcast. It is the 23rd of January. And on the agenda this morning, we talked about the UAE's biggest ever concert. It took place over the weekend twice Ed Sheeran's performances were organised by Thomas Overson. Now he's the CEO of All Things Live Middle East and we discussed record-breaking logistics with him on the show today. We had a huge amount of interaction uh, about parking, uh, so it's well worth a listen. Meanwhile, Abu Dhabi is working on several brand new attractions and expanding others. We got the lowdown from Julian Kaufman. He's the CEO of Morale Experiences. And Morale is the company that manages the attractions on Yaz Island. And Expo City is teaming up with Dr. Jane Goodall. So we talked roots and shoots with the famous English primatologist. Meanwhile, a new survey reveals the number of people who've been involved in an accident is at an all-time high in the UAE. That's according to the 2023 survey. We got deeper into those figures with Thomas Edelman from Road Safety UAE. Plus, Boeing coming under the spotlight again with another of their aircraft models being scrutinised for safety. But what does that mean for us? We found out with aviation analyst John Strickland. And Lebanon's tourism sector is really struggling. We discussed the impact of unrest in the Middle East with the economist Professor Simon Naomi from Beirut. Plus, Chris McCarty, our sports editor, brought us up to date with everything on and off the pitch. I think probably by now the dust is just startling To settle out at the Seven Stadium, that is after Ed Sheeran's record-breaking performances, Um, as I'm sure you know. I think you'd have to be sleeping under a rock not to have heard about it. Uh, The global superstar wowed more than sixty thousand fans over the weekend with two totally awesome shows uh, that were sold out on both Friday and Saturday night. Yes, we did all know the words to that song. I was there on Friday, and of course, it was the Dubai leg of Ed Sheeran's record-breaking Mathematics tour. It made history as the largest combined open-air concert to ever take place in the Emirates. And the moment I arrived, I all I could think about was well, obviously the concert was awesome, but also I was like, how do you organize something like this? The logistics must be completely insane. And, and I decided then and there that I was going to try and get the organiser on the radio show. And the wonderful thing about Dubai is that you can. Uh, it takes a few days, but it, but it happened. Uh, Thomas Overson has joined us now on Teams. A very busy man indeed. He is the CEO of All Things Live Middle East. And he is the man that organised this concert. Morning, Thomas. How are you doing?
2: I'm good, Georgia. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well indeed. Have you slept at all for the last week? I bet you haven't.
2: I'm much better than most of my team members, honestly. They have had a rough couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, we're just uh, resurfacing now and there's still lots of work going out on, uh, going on out on site.
1: Fantastic. Now tell me, how long ago did you start planning a concert of this size?
2: We started talking to Ed's team late spring 2022 when he knew he was going to uh, add the Middle East to his Asia dates. And back then, there wasn't a complete tour routing in place, but it was clear that it would be easiest for him if um, he kicked off in the Middle East and then moved uh, towards the East. So we started looking at at, uh, different time periods and and what we thought we could do in the UAE. And eventually, when his team locked in, what they wanted to do in the region, we um, regrouped and then decided on um, how many tickets we thought that would enable us to sell in this market. And, and in, in that light, how could we uh, price the tickets as favorable as possible for the fans and manage the um, the expected uh, audience numbers and should we do one, two or three shows? And, and those logistics were probably locked in Uh, As late as summer 23, it took almost a year to plan all of that. And then summer 23, we started looking towards um, the timeline of announcement and eventually putting it on sale, um, giving fans enough time to get their tickets and eventually the team here on ground enough time to build the the venue and have enough infrastructure in place for the arriving tour uh, within a few days to put their production into play.
1: When did you decide to hold it out at the Sevens?
2: It was um, when when it was decided that he was only going to do one other show in the region, which was a small capacity show and uh, with an in-the-end production. So a conventional show where the stage is at the end of the, the venue in Bahrain. That's when we knew that the demand for for his shows in the UAE would be bigger than if he had played elsewhere in the region And we we thought that there would be at least demand for 50,000, potentially more. And we didn't think we could do a show, uh, a one night show with that capacity Uh, and both have proximity to states uh, by the fans deliver the very technical, uh, technically demanding in the round production that you experienced when you went to the show. Uh, and all of all of that and and also managing the ticket prices, so when we decided it had to be two shows and it had to be a venue where we could build the the production with the states in the middle um, with the correct distance um, to the different uh, audience sections, both standing and and seated guests. there was only a few available uh, venue options where that would be possible where we could get the right food and beverage permissions um, and that had the uh, large entertainment event, uh, historic experience with, with events like that.
1: I mean, the staging was absolutely out of this world. Um, for those of you who weren't there, the, the stage was round. He had an audience on, huge audience on three sides, a bit of the audience on the fourth. He did not stop. He literally runs around that stage like it's a racetrack. So everyone feels involved. There were fireworks, loads of fireworks. Even right at the start, there was just fire as well. Um, and I mean, it was just huge and revolving. And uh, I mean, out of this world, Do, what, how does that work? Does he bring, does he have that stage? Is that his stage? And he just brings it to you or did you build that from scratch?
2: So there's a couple of scenarios when he did the European dates and and that was the consideration for us in the beginning as well. He basically traveled with everything. A couple of of, uh, big cargo jumbo jets um, to take care of that. Eventually when the dates from from the UAE and and eastbound had been locked in and his team had done their calculations on on cost and, and looked at the logistics, it was decided that because of the very experienced um, um, industry service uh, providers in this market, that in the UAE we would be capable of building some of that locally, that he didn't have to travel with it. So we were tasked with building part of the infrastructure, including the towers that carried the the 360-degree screen that he's using for, for the production, plus the four uh, plexa-shaped screens that, that you would have seen um, he brought in the revolving states and and that was built into our structure so it 's a bit of uh, both but um, it 's not all markets that would be capable of of building that it 's very technically demanding we haven 't had productions in the round before in this market um, and it was uh, it, it was uh, one of the fixtures of the show. It was something that he 's only in two or three smaller shows he 's decided to do in the end because it enables him to have a much more intimate experience with the fans and basically i don't think you have anyone that's more than 50 60 meters away from um, uh, from the stage which is quite unique when you have 60,000 people through on two nights
1: i mean it's quite extraordinary you have to be a you have to be a real star to be able to manage an audience like that while constantly moving singing i mean you must be so incredibly fit i i've i've I it was staggering, honestly. The man did not stop the whole night singing, dancing. He did a two and a half hour set, two nights in a row. And then we can see from social media, he was out and about enjoying Dubai in the meantime. Tell me, what was the craziest element of the logistics? Because it always already sounds slightly bananas.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, that's the the technicalities of of the States, making sure that the sound is uh, correct on, on all sides, where normally you you kind of have people only on one side of the States, if you like. And here you had, as you mentioned, you had both standing and seated in, in different configurations all around. And um, uh, the, the local sound uh, guys here just did an incredible job together with our production team making that work out. But that was that was definitely one of the logistics. And then it's just, I mean, we had 1,600 people working at the event uh, there was more than a hundred people traveling within its party uh, Obviously, you probably saw Callum Scott perform another artist that's also a fantastic performer that needs a good production too the logistics of the hotels, the ground transportation some of the people were in town for ten days, some was in town for three to four days so the the team that managed the that grid uh been busy for a very long time and so so it's a mix up but it's all logistics uh, yeah really
1: okay so you're you're i suppose in many ways anyone any event organizer here in the middle east is is lucky with your audience where we're all pretty well behaved um no one No one gets out of hand. We all toe the line, and and we queue where we're told, uh, and we sit where we're told. And um, everyone's very fragrant uh, as well, which is quite different to if you go to concerts in, you know, in London or in other capital cities. So your audience is well behaved, except when they get in their cars, (laughs) and then no one is well behaved. And I've got to talk to you about the parking. I was there on Friday. It did take a long time to get out of the car park, a very long time. And I know that I can't not ask you the question. because lots of people have texted in to ask about, you know, did, did something go wrong there? Is that why it took so long to get out the car parks? Or is that just the reality? If you go to a concert where there are 30,000 people and most of us are driven, is that just the reality?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's mass. There was 15,000 vehicles that had to get out, um, limited roads to get out of the venue. So it would take two hours, whether it's in an orderly fashion or a less orderly fashion. Um, and and of course, if you get in your car and your car is not moving, it's very frustrating when you want to get home. Um, so, I think on the first night, the uh, police applied um, uh, an approach where they emptied pens by pens. So, certain area would be emptied first, then the next, and of course. When that's not communicated, when you don't know about it, if you sit in the last pen, you might be sitting for half an hour, 45 minutes not moving, and you see people around you deciding to go off-road and uh, not follow the marshaler's advice, and you think, if I don't do the same, am I going to ever be moving? And I don't know if there's a plan to this. Um, And that's very frustrating, and perhaps that led to to people uh, dismissing the – uh, usher uh, advice more than they, they should but in the end of the day emptying that space is going to take the same time one, one way or the other Saturday more people have parked their cars in, in more distant locations in order to walk back and forth some of those might have blocked some departing vehicles but again it takes roughly two hours to empty that that uh, parking lot for 15,000 vehicles if you um, depart all at the, the same time and it would have obviously been fantastic if we had an underground metro service or something that would allow you to bypass the need to get in a vehicle, whether you drive it yourself or you're chauffeured. Um, It's also a matter of just when everyone gets in the vehicles, um, the police at the highway uh, intersections have to make a call. Do you prioritize vehicles departing from vehicles coming in to pick, picking up people? And either way, every time you make a call, it affects someone. Mm. Um, because it was Friday, was a working day. I guess that was probably when most people really wanted to go back home. Saturday, more people hung back and enjoyed the music at the venue and 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 went out later. Um, but I think it's just uh, fifteen thousand vehicles will take two hours to empty that that venue, and um, it's there's, just the- no, there's no way to beat it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was just it was just the reality. I mean, to a certain extent, I probably didn't quite feel that way in my car at the time, but but I uh, <laughs> but but I, retrospectively, I do understand it. Um, our last question: Were you always sure you'd sell out? Were you always sure it was going to work? Because it must be such a leap of faith to invest so much money in something like this, hoping that it's going to come off.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's just a phenomenal artist and one that perhaps. Uh, transcends all sorts of genres and and, uh, fan age groups. So we knew it would be um, great in demand. Of course, we have no way of knowing 100%. But I think what we see is happening in other markets, we we felt very comfortable. Last time he was here, we sold 30,000 tickets for him. We knew we could have done more. And one of the Very, very nice things about it is he was quite concerned about his ticket price. He wanted to keep the ticket price low, wanted to make sure people uh, weren't too far away from the action. So he immediately agreed with the scenario of doing two shows instead of one, which was also a request from our side in order to have less people gathered and less of the logistical issues um, that we just spoke about. And then... Um, I think we ended up with a ticket price. The cheapest ticket price was 495 DMs, and with, as I said, you were n- not very far from action, even in the cheapest tickets.
1: Yeah, that's the one Fantastic I got. Purchase. I got. I was very happy with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that that's that that's unique in this market where we are uh, pretty high on on the average ticket prices. So we thought it was, would be appealing. Would it be 50,000 tickets? Could we get to 60,000? We we weren't sure, but. Obviously it blew out and that's all credit uh credit to him. And when we look at we we're going over the stats now, we reckon twenty, twenty five thousand of the guests came from outside of Dubai, some from other parts of the UAE, some from other parts of the region. Uh, you know, there would have been easily twenty thousand, fifteen 000 to twenty thousand flights purchased for people coming, um, you know, perhaps uh fifty, 000, sixty thousand room nights uh for for this event. Um, millions of dollars put into food and beverage uh, across the city so the impact of an event like this is is tremendously uh, uh, felt across the the whole ecosystem in the city i think
1: it really is i've got 30 seconds left with you would you do it all again
2: yeah for sure any any opportunities to work with him or or, or any of the other handful of artists that can sell this many tickets um but we also look forward to doing some some small and upcoming artists and and uh, a variety of other types of shows over the coming months.
1: Fantastic to speak to you, Thomas. Thank you take, for taking so much time with us. I know that you were literally overnight dealing with freighting Ed Sheeran's uh, bits of his stage back to wherever it was that they came from. So we really appreciate you joining us on the radio this morning. That is Thomas Overson, the CEO of All Things Live Middle East. Now, we've had this huge focus on events on the programme so far, but they aren't the only thing that countries use to attract tourists. They also build massive attractions like water parks and roller coasters. And right now, there's a massive conference going on on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi, bringing together all the global members of the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. So why are they there? Well, You might have noticed Abu Dhabi is working at breakneck speed to build half a dozen massive brand new attractions. And they're also expanding the ones they've already got. So among them, you've got the Natural History Museum, Harry Potter at Warner Brothers World, the Guggenheim uh, and also the Zayed National Museum. Uh, Miral Group is responsible for many of them. And a little earlier, I spoke to Julian Kaufman. Now, he's the CEO of Miral Experiences. And he basically talked me through their latest projects on Yaz and Sadiat Islands.
3: We've just opened SeaWorld Yaz Island last year, a major success. As you know, it's the largest marine park in the region and by distance. We have more than you know 68,000 animals from sharks, fishes, manta rays, sea turtles walrus, penguins, but also birds. We've tried by opening SeaWorld to actually give people in the UAE, but also the tourists, the chance to emerge into you know, the, the marine wildlife, to be able to, to see how they can protect the environment, how can they actually get their kids their children to, to interact with the marine life and you'd be willing to protect it in the future.
1: Of course, the very early days of the opening, we broadcast live from SeaWorld. And it's interesting uh-huh. that we've got that one year on sort of anniversary. Has it been a success? Are you talking about visitor numbers yet?
3: No, we're gonna talk about numbers yet because we haven't finished off for a year. But, but it's been really big success. I, I think it's been a success both on the quantitative side. I mean, we've seen our numbers be really, really strong every day for the summer, but also you know, this, this recent winter. But also on the qualitative side, you know, our satisfaction rating are extremely high. You know, we receive a number of awards from the industry, which actually seems to confirm, you know, that we made the right choices when they designed that park. So we're really proud of, of those achievements.
1: And how about looking ahead? I know the last time I did a major interview with you guys at Morale, we were talking about Harry Potter World. And I know that everyone is very excited about that.
3: Yeah, I can imagine you're excited because we're excited as well. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing character and an amazing word. Um, So we continue to work on Harry Potter, which is coming up as part of Warner Bros expansion. So that's definitely coming up. In the meantime, you know, what's really interesting is that we have a very clear vision of where we want to be in terms of Yas Island. We really want to make Yas Island an integrated leisure destination for the guests from around the world, wherever they come from, but also for the UAE residents. And therefore we committed to actually growing experiences we have today. So for those guests who have been to the island recently, they can see actually we started the work on the YAS Waterward expansion. We're going to grow it by like almost 20%. We're going to add 18 new rides and attractions, including you know, what's going to be the UAE's highest slide. And we know we have a tough competition in the UAE when it comes to water parks, so we have to set the bar even higher. And that's what we're aiming at.
1: I mean, how about in the immediate future. Obviously, we're going to talk about the big, far-reaching trends and innovations that are coming up in the next few years. But how about in the next few months? Obviously, we're in the midst of the world's coolest winter. What have we got to look forward to?
3: We're going to bring a new Chinese New Year celebration at Ferrari World with pop-up shows and activities. We're reopening Yes, Water World on the 5th of February. And then we're planning, actually, an amazing summer celebration. Summer is a very strong Set of months for us because our parks are indoor. You know, last year we were extremely successful in the summer, and this year again we want to invest a lot of new experiences, new shows, new content, new excitement.
1: So I think the last three weekends and the next two weekends, I am going to be in Abu Dhabi for the weekend, and I live in Dubai, and that is a surefire sign that <laughs> you guys and the tourism bosses in Abu Dhabi are getting it right. Because there was a time when I just stayed in Dubai, I never moved. And one of the big things that's attracting me down there is Sadiat Island, which you're also in charge of. But there's a slightly different twist about Sadiat Island, isn't there? It's more of a sort of cultural vibe than a family attractions vibe. Is, is that a deliberate strategy?
3: The vision is to grow Abu Dhabi as a tourist destination, as a full-fledged destination. And to do so, you need to cater to all the audiences. The way we look at it is that actually Yas Island clearly will be the undisputed you know, leader when it comes to leisure, entertainment, and, and, and fun and experiences. Sadly, it will also be fun entertainment, but with a different vibe to it, more cultural, with all the museums coming up. We are trying, being Marriott, to actually blend our know-how in terms of engaging the guests, providing super fun experiences, but also with the cultural element.
1: And the last two times I've been down to Sarayat Island, I mean, there is the most incredible amount of building works going on down yeah. there. What is it that you're actually building? What can I see with the line of cranes? I mean, obviously there's apartments, but is it also the Guggenheim you're building there?
3: As far as Murray is concerned, we're working on two projects. We're working on TeamLab Phenomena, which is due to be delivered at the end of 2024. TeamLab is a piece of art actually, that was de- developed in Japan and they've developed ex- you know, immersive experiences, we're bringing those immersive experiences to Abu Dhabi and to Saudi Islands, and we're going to bring them actually on a scale I've never seen before. So I think you know I cannot tell too much details because we need to keep the excitement, but I can tell you that it's going to be very immersive, unique experience that the whole family will be able to enjoy. And we're also working on the new Natural History Museum, but as you know, you know beyond Mira, there's other developments happening, and as you mentioned, there's the Guggenheim Museum and the Sheikh Zayed National Museum, which are due to open as well. So the vision is really, I think, by the time all those locations are completed, we're going to have the most amazing cultural experiences in the Middle East altogether.
1: So these are huge projects. There's a huge amount of money going into them. Obviously, just on the border, you've got Dubai that already has a very well-developed tourism offering. Ultimately, do you think there's space in this market for Abu Dhabi to have this level of offering as well. Do you think that there are enough tourists to go around?
3: Uh, absolutely. No, we're absolutely convinced, actually. If you look at the the size of the tourism market, it's been growing, even after the pandemic has been growing really quickly, especially in, in, in this part of the world. I mean, this is the fastest growing tourism region in the world. So... We are convinced there's this room for, for, for multiple experiences. And you referred to it when we're talking about Sadiat and, and Yarsana. We, we need this room for multiple experiences for the families and for the people to enjoy different kinds of experiences. In reality, in, in the UAE, if we're able to combine all those experiences, we're going to bring it to the next level. So when it comes to investing, we're investing in experiences which we really are strong. We're committed to providing the best possible quality. So we're convinced, that actually, if we keep doing that, you know, we're going to keep attracting people.
1: And tell me, obviously, we've got this, this huge conference going on at the moment in Abu Dhabi on Yaz Island. What would you pinpoint as the sort of most interesting trends that you are seeing developing in your sector at the moment? Obviously, artificial intelligence is a, a buzzword in every sector. Is that something that you see being a major sort of element or perhaps it's something completely different?
3: Our industry, the entertainment industry, the theme park industry, the leisure industry has always been at the forefront of actually using technology to entertain people. Our goal is still to to provide the best possible experiences and to make sure people have the most fun and learn in the nice way when it comes to, to, to museums. To do so, use technology. And that's what this industry has been doing for 100 years, 150 years. Every time there's been a new piece of technology, we've been using it actually to, to enhance the experience. And so when you come to virtual reality, augmented reality, metaverse, and artificial intelligence, I mean the whole industry, and of course we at Mirale, because we take pride on being at the forefront of this industry, we're very, very keen to make sure we can leverage all those technology. And we are leveraging all those technology to enhance the experience of our guests, which is again our ultimate goal. So, for instance, two years ago, you know, we were the first one to leverage facial recognition to provide a better experience to our guests. Last year, in 2023, we were the first one to use ChatGPT as a way to actually enhance the interaction with our guests when they actually call us or they contact us. And as you said, you know, looking forward, we want to be in a position to use artificial intelligence and new technologies the same way to enhance the experience of, of our guests.
1: That is such an interesting interview. So fascinating to hear there from the team at Morale about everything that they are developing in Abu Dhabi. That was Julian Kaufman, the CEO of Morale Experiences. They're talking through their latest projects on Yaz and Sadiat Islands. Welcome back to the show. Really interesting developments going on down at Expo City, Dubai, because they've decided to team up with the English primatologist and anthropologist, Dr. Jane Goodall. Have you heard of her? She's like a real key part of my childhood. Uh, You might remember pictures of her. She was one of the first primatologists to talk I mean I say talk but to sort of commune with the gorillas does that ring a bell anyway she is working to encourage young people to learn more about sustainability she's been doing it for years Um, and as you can imagine there's a really nice tie up there with Expo City Dubai and they're going to introduce Jane Goodall's Institute's Roots and Shoots Youth Programme it's going to have its first regional office at Terra the Sustainability Pavilion and the idea behind the initiative is that it's going to introduce a range of of interactive activities, things like tree planting, beekeeping, which sounds nice, and also habitat conservation within the grounds of Expo City Dubai. Now, earlier I caught up with Dr Goodall, uh, who explained how the organisation works.
4: Around the world, there are 25 Jane Goodall Institutes and the Roots and Shoots programme, which is, this is starting here in Dubai and in the UAE, is one of our main programs. And the Roots Shoot program is in 70 countries around the world. And we have members from, well, a few preschoolers, lot of kindergarten, university, everything in between, even more and more adults forming groups. And the aim is, the main message is, every single one of us makes an impact on the planet every single day. And unless we're living in deep poverty or perhaps in some autocratic regime, we can choose the sort of impact we make. And secondly, because we learn that everything is interconnected, groups choose three projects to make the world better, one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. So the kind of projects that they choose will depend on the environment will depend on age, will depend on the culture, the religion, etc. of the country where they are. So all around the world, we have young people choosing projects, huge variety of them, to make the world better.
1: And how are you expecting the project to work with this very exciting new partnership with Expo City?
4: We're growing around the world because not only do we start new groups, but we go into partnership with organizations that have the same kind of goal, wanting to make the world a better place. So hopefully, this collaboration with the Expo City, which does have the same kind of aims, will help us get the word out to more and more young people who are influencing their parents, their grandparents, their teachers, and their friends.
1: Have you seen a a big pickup in interest over the last five or so years with more children, more schools, more families wanting to get involved with this type of campaign?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's growing exponentially around the world and the different countries expanding the numbers of groups all the time as people get to hear about it uh, and they want to join in. And it's like a, a growing family.
1: Do you find that often it's children who are leading their parents to live a more environmentally conscious life?
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's a cycle. The children are educating their parents. And I know so many parents say, well, you know, I have to recycle. My kids make me and so on. In turn, the young ones growing up will educate their children.
1: Of course, we've had COP28 hosted right here in the UAE in the last few months. It certainly accelerated interest in sustainable practices here in the UAE. I know you've traveled here many times. You come for the Emirates Literature Festival, for example. Have you seen changes here? Are you encouraged by the activity that takes place here?
4: Well, I'm certainly encouraged by the activity. I'm never here long enough. I couldn't honestly say I've seen change. I've heard about it. I know awareness is growing here and Expo 28 must have really woken people up to what's happening and what needs to happen.
1: You've worked in this field for so long, and over the years, you must have seen the sad deterioration of habitats around the world. We actually have had some good news just recently, the news that the destruction of the Amazon has actually slowed in the last 12 months. Do you see green shoots of positivity around the world now?
4: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's very important. We've got a lot of voting around the world. I think 40 countries are having um, elections this year. And, you know, people should decide that the only people qualified to take office in a very messed up world are those who care about the future, those who care about slowing down change and loss of biodiversity. But, you know, you mentioned the Amazon was the result of an election that brought Lula back into power and 2,000 square miles of forest are now standing that would have been destroyed. Lula hadn't come into power, clamped down on illegal logging and logging in general. But there are so many good stories, small ones and bigger ones, and it's fine for the media to put out the doom and the gloom. We need to know it, but balanced with the good stories because that gives people hope. Hope, why bother? People fall into apathy and do nothing.
1: Dr. Jane Goodall there, English primatologist and anthropologist and uh, the woman behind that Roots and Shoots youth programme. Yes, you're listening to The Agenda here and the latest results of a long-running UAE road safety report are hot off the press. They're just out. They show a really interesting mix, a quite sort of unexpected statistics in many ways, actually. Uh, Let's start with the good news. I like to start with good news on a Tuesday morning. Uh, More than 80% of people suggest that they have seen safety improve on the roads of the UAE. But the number of people who've been involved in an accident is at an all-time high. You see, I lift you up. That I strike you down. Um, surprisingly, driving enjoyment in the UAE is also higher than ever. Uh, and that is despite more than half of us saying that we've seen our commute time increase. Now, this survey always gets people talking. I instantly have loads of comments about it. In no way do I find my driving experience in the UAE good. I hate the school run, it is the worst two hours of my day, hour and a half of my day, without a shadow of a doubt. In fact, within my marriage, we're trying to work on ways in which I can handle it better because I'm losing my mind over it. That's how bad it is. That's how bad the traffic is in my life. It's become a subject in our marriage. Um, <laughs> Anyway, let's move off that. And thank goodness well, I've got someone to talk to you about it. So I don't just go off on one um, because joining me now to break down the figures is Thomas Edelman, the man behind the survey, uh, which was also done by YouGov. He's the founder and managing director of Road Safety UAE. Thomas, lovely to have you as ever join us on the line. Tell me how you carry this survey out.
5: Yeah. Uh, good morning, Georgia. Um, I'm today your second Thomas in the show. I listened to Thomas Overson. Oh, Uh, yeah. I know Thomas. (laughs) Interesting subject. Yeah, well, basically, um, we started the survey in the year 2015. And the purpose of the survey is to have a measurement tool to see how effective uh, all the measures of the stakeholders are with regards to road safety. So meaning... Um, Is the road infrastructure improving? Yes or no? Uh, Do we see um, less reckless driving on the roads? Yes or no? So what are the dimensions of reckless driving that we are seeing? Because this helps the stakeholders to direct their efforts in in really addressing the big issues. Like for example, if we would see a strong increase, for example, in tailgating, in perceived tailgating, uh, then we know ah we have to do more towards educating motorists um, about tailgating. If um, if a number develops positively, then we can. Not really stop doing things, but we can maybe focus on other things that need our attention more. So basically, this um, UAE road safety monitor that we have been running, as you mentioned, um, this time with Alwatba Insurance and, uh, and with YouGov, um, is now the 10th time that we are running it. It's the 10th cycle we started in 2015. And we have got a lot of very positive comments uh, for this tool.
1: Yeah, I mean, does the survey show that the roads are getting safer? Because it is very detailed.
5: Yes, um, the bottom line is basically twofold. So we have seen uh, that a little bit throughout the 10 cycles. So first of all, the UAE motorists applaud the government. So we have 83% of UAE motorists stating the UAE road infrastructure improves. And we have um, had an all-time high of 84%. So we are 83% right now. So we are just a little bit off the all-time high. So you can say the UE motorists are super happy with what the government is doing. And (laughs) unlike you, um, people also enjoy driving a lot. So we have an all-time high. <laughs> Who are of... these
4: people? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Maybe not the people coming from big concerts and not the people in the, in the school runs. But other, other than that, it seems people are happy. And, and this also goes back to the government. So the government is doing a good job. However, we as motorists, we still continue to misbehave. The trends are positive, so we are maybe misbehaving a little bit less, but the absolute figures of misbehavior and of reckless driving are still very high, but the good news is they are coming down a bit.
1: Okay, that is good news. What are the specific behaviors that are considered by drivers in your survey to be causing the biggest problem? I and mean, I can list them for you, but I'm just one person with anecdotal evidence. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. the guys but, who go behind you and flash your lights to try and make oh, you move over yeah. and there's someone next to you and you're like, I can't move over. There's someone next to me. Anyway. Uh, no. yeah,
5: yeah, it's up, up there. I mean, tailgating is definitely up there. So we have about 58% of people saying, yeah, there is more tailgating around. However, in the previous wave, we have seen 62%. So we, have, we are dropping from 62% to 58%. But still, when 58% of people are saying, hey, you know, there's still a lot of tailgating going on, it is still an issue. Uh, speeding, 63% of people are saying, hey, there are a lot of speeding vehicles out there. Yes, it's also going down but versus previous uh, cycles, but it is still... An issue that needs to be tackled. So uh, tailgating, speeding, distracted driving, lane swerving. So these are really the big things that we have to continue working on.
1: I have to talk about the traffic because um, I don't have a problem with my commute. I have a problem, as mentioned, with the school run, and that has doubled—definitely doubled. Does that translate into your figures? Not just my school run, but but does, does the increased traffic translate into your figures?
5: Yes, I mean, this is also one of the downsides. We have seen uh, that people are stating they are actually um, more stuck in traffic jams than in the previous cycles. This is possibly a negative development that can be, uh, that can be stated uh, in, in, uh, in the story that it is overall a positive one. Um, but we have about uh, 56% uh, percent of people, so more than half of the people, saying, you know, in the last six months, uh, the commute time is, uh, is, ta- is taking longer. So this is definitely an issue. So this also means, yes, we're happy with what the government is doing. We are very happy with it. 83% of people are happy with what, what uh, the government is doing. Can the government stop improving infrastructure? No. No. Because we also want to make Georgia happier. <laughs> <laughs> just me,
1: just me. Don't worry. There's and a reason. <laughs> there's a reason I have the Roads and Transport Authority on so often. It's because I like to just go. So now Sakeem Street. When are we getting more lanes? <laughs> um, yeah. And we have had lots of <laughs> announcements from the RTA recently about those new roads. Are drivers aware of that? You know, you mentioned there. Are they are they impressed by the network out here?
5: Yes, okay. they are impressed. I mean, I can just, I can just repeat uh, the 83% of people that are happy. And it's about, you know, keeping people informed. And yeah. even um, Thomas Overson, in, in relation to the to the event, he said, well, you know, people were confused. They were not sure what's going to happen. Nothing was moving. So it is about informing motorists, not only at concerts, but everywhere. It's if you are informed, we understand, we can adjust our behavior. I think the worst is if you're not informed. So insofar, the RTA and the other stakeholders like ITC in Abu Dhabi police uh, Ministry of Interior and um, they are all going out and they are informing people regularly mm-hmm. when you just see what's happening on on uh, X the former Twitter I mean Dubai police is so active RTA is so active I get multiple messages every day, so it is about educating, informing, raising awareness for road safety, for proper behavior, for circumstances. So it really boils down to communicating with road users, also listening to them, and, and just continue doing our job, raising awareness, improving infrastructure, and, and helping um, yeah, everybody to be safer uh, on the roads.
1: Thomas Edelman there, founder and managing director of Road Safety UAE. Thank you, as ever, uh, for your time. And the other Thomas he just mentioned there, Thomas Overson, uh, he's the organiser of that big Ed Sheeran concert that took place out of the Sevens Stadium. Uh, We spoke to him at 10 o'clock. We are going to re-listen to that interview just after midday. I know that lots of people struggled uh, with the traffic around that concert. Uh, We talked to him about it. We got into those details. So well worth uh, keeping it locked on Dubai Eye 103.8 after midday as well to listen back to that interview or of course you could listen to our podcast uh, we do we create it or exact to be exact milani creates it every single day after our show uh, and you can find it on the website dubai1038.com lovely message come in here anonymous someone here says i'm driving to ras al right now and i am enjoying the drive fair enough I, I, I understand that people do sometimes enjoy driving, and actually that route up to Ras Al Khaimah, it's mostly clear. Uh, and if you stick it on cruise control and take a chill pill, you can sort of look out and see camels and dunes, and it is beautiful. So I can understand the drive up to Ras Al Khaimah is quite pleasant. To be fair, up to Hatter's also quite nice once you get out of town. Um, so maybe those are the people who said that they enjoyed driving in the UAE.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia Tolley here with you till one. Looking at a big sort of international story um, because I want to find out how much it's going to impact us here. Uh, because ultimately it looks like Boeing's woes are far from over. The US Federal Aviation Administration has now called for checks to be carried out on a second Boeing aircraft model. Now, you might remember there was that big uh, blowout of an unused door on a 737 MAX 9 earlier this month. And that led to the whole fleet being grounded pending inspections. Um, but there's there's more now. Another model has is going to be looked at. Let's find out more um, before I sort of start stumbling over codes. Um, joining us to give us the latest is aviation consultant John Strickland from JLS Aviation. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on the line very early in the morning in the United Kingdom. Can you tell me which model they're checking and why they're checking it?
6: Yeah, morning, Georgia. This model is called the Boeing uh, 737-900. It's an earlier model that's been in service quite a number of years. There are several hundred of these aircraft operating. They've got millions of flying hours behind them. It's been a very uh, reliable and safe aircraft. The reason it's been checked is because the fuselage uh, components of this aircraft are very similar to the Boeing 737 MAX 9s, which have been inspected uh, and are still being inspected, uh, like the one that had the, uh, the door component coming off it. Uh, as I mentioned, the fuse large components are similar in that they have, in some cases, this kind of plugged door, which many of us have come to. Learn all about in the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's a door which is uh, available on an optional basis as an emergency exit uh, for airlines flying the aircraft to its full capacity. But for airlines using lower numbers of seats, it's plugged in. It's not actually a usable door in any sense of the term for customers, and you wouldn't see it as a passenger. But the construction's the same. There's the need to check the, the bolts on this unit, which have been uh, part of the inquiry on the 737 Max 9.
1: Okay, so should we be nervous if we end up travelling on one of these planes?
6: I would say not. I mean, most of them, first of all, are in, in the USA. By far, the majority are flying for US carriers. So, in terms of um, UAE or indeed Europe, for example, there's not very much uh, exposure to this uh, type of aircraft. And if they are on the ground for inspection, uh, they won't be allowed to fly again until those inspections have been done and satisfactory. Conclusions have been reached. Similarly so for the, uh, the MAX 9s that are grounded currently. About 40 or so of the this type of aircraft, the one involved in the incident, have been inspected and are fine. But the US authority, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is not allowing any to fly until they've checked all of them. And again, drawn conclusions as to whether any action needs to be taken.
1: What is the sort of current main thesis of of what actually caused this door plug to blow out mid-flight because this was a really new plane, wasn't
6: it? Yeah, well, the, we won't know decisively until the inquiry is complete, but uh, effectively we've had an acknowledgement that there is uh, a, a, an issue certainly contributing to this, of quality control in production. Because as you said, it was a very new plane. There's no way you would expect something of this kind to happen. And Boeing held a company-wide briefing right about a week ago now, perhaps a little bit more, when the CEO addressed the entire company. And he talked about there had been quality escape. He mentioned this from the factory where the fuselage of the aircraft was produced, which is a, a separate supplier company. Uh, to Boeing called Spirit and he then talked about quality escape again in Boeing's own factory. Now this rather innocent term of quality escape basically means that uh, there was not the quality either in the production process at the original factory or at Boeing when they oversaw the final uh, assembly of that aircraft before it was delivered to Alaska Airlines and that essentially means quality control in production has to be looked at and the fuselage sections on this other aircraft which which is now going to be inspected the seven three seven nine hundred, are produced at that same factory.
1: Okay so Put it all together, what impact is this actually having on Boeing's reputation? You know, I mean, on its share price, for example.
6: Well, reputation is certainly a key factor. And uh, we've heard industry voices, including... Tim, Sir Tim Clark, of course, Emirates President who's spoken uh, vocally on a number of occasions about Boeing's need to get its house in order and, and lacking quality in Europe. We've heard Michael O'Leary, the boss of uh, the largest low-cost airline Ryanair, commenting in the same way. And He has a, a massive fleet of different versions of the Boeing 737, not either of these two versions, I would stress. And there are other airline leaders that, that I've, I've spoken to who've expressed their surprise at uh, in, in many ways even lack of contrition in discussions they've had with Boeing in the past uh, after the two uh, fatal MAX crashes. So there is a, a, a tide of dissatisfaction uh, that the management of the company has to address because airlines, of course, are the immediate customer. We, as travellers, are the customers who then sit on the seats of those planes. But uh, I don't think we're about to see uh, airlines cancelling orders, but they are obviously concerned uh, to get aircraft delivered that are, one, not lacking quality and certainly in no way lacking safety
1: really fascinating stuff uh, obviously we're a, here in the uae we're a big sort of traveling community massive two massive uh, airlines and so very very interesting to hear about how the machinations with boeing are proceeding aviation consultant john strickland thank you so much for your time much much appreciated uh, john strickland is from jls aviation speaking right here on the agenda on dubai 103.8 i have to admit i've never really looked at what models planes are, but with this type of thing going on, you're suddenly thinking oh i'm flying to flying to London on Friday. I wonder what type of plane i'm going to be on, and you start reading numbers. Now, we've been discussing recently on the show just how well the UAE has been doing from a tourism perspective. But not far away, another country is really struggling. Now, occupancy rates in hotels in Lebanon are averaging 25 to 50% lower than last year. And it's, of course, all down to that continuing unrest that we've seen here in the Middle East. Now, uh, last summer was a, a sort of bright spark for Lebanon because tourism experienced something of a boom. You had uh, Westerners and the Lebanese diaspora all sort of flocking to the country in the largest numbers seen since the beginning of the financial crisis that they had there in 2019. But that has all changed now. Joining me to discuss the impact is Simon Niami, who is a professor of economics at the American University of Beirut. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Can you tell me a little bit more about the realities on the ground uh, you know w- are visitors are visitor numbers down dramatically then
7: uh, they are indeed, and uh, that's true since the onset of uh, the crisis, the crisis in Gaza, south lebanon, that has impacted negatively on the sector. Uh, we've seen uh, already declines in our GDP since the onset of the financial crisis, as you just mentioned. Uh, In 2019, uh, GDP went down from 54 billion to 19 billion. And the tourism sector has been uh, one of those vibrant sectors that really attract uh, foreign currency that is badly needed for the Lebanese economy. And since the uh, onset of the recent crisis and after uh, the the small break we had in the summer, as you uh, mentioned, uh, where we saw... The uh, Lebanese diaspora uh, going back to Lebanon and bringing with them uh, the uh, foreign currency that is badly needed for uh, the economy. We've seen that taking another hit as a result of the recent crisis in the south and in Gaza. Uh, uh, tourism revenues have uh, gone down uh, uh, and averaging a uh, negative 50 to 100 billion dollars per month uh, since the onset of the crisis in, on October 7th. And uh, things do not uh, look to be uh, going in the right direction, given the fact that uh, the war there uh, is dragging with the repercussions on South Lebanon and the probability that uh, the crisis of the war, if you wish, in Gaza uh, could develop into a global uh, war on Lebanon as well. Uh, So the the tourism sector has really suffered uh, uh, recently And uh, foreign currency is badly needed in Lebanon as a result of the financial crisis. And that sector is one of those pillar sectors that the economy has been relying on to get its badly needed foreign currency.
1: Yeah, I mean, how much of Lebanon's economy does rely on tourism? Are are you seeing a knock-on effect already into other sections of, of the community?
7: Uh, We are indeed. I mean, uh, we don't, uh, I mean, since the onset of the crisis, Lebanon has been relying on foreign currency to to keep its economy going. Uh, And the decline in in the uh, revenues from the tourism sector has uh, really uh, led to a big hit for whatever currency was coming in, uh, foreign currency that is badly needed. So, and we're talking about maybe 100 to 150 million uh, every month. Uh, So the only source of foreign currency uh, in Lebanon is uh, whatever the diaspora is sending uh, back to to Lebanon, plus the tourism sector. So these are the two sources of foreign currency. And uh, the tourism sector has taken a significant hit, which is impacting on uh, foreign currency dollars that are coming in. Uh, That is uh, therefore leading to more current account deficits, to a balance of payment deficit and also impacting negatively on the exchange rate. Now, it is more or less has, uh, the exchange rate has stabilized at 90,000 per USD, but things, if things continue uh, the way they are today, we can, uh, we might see another uh, depreciation, significant depreciation of the local currency impacting negatively on uh, consumption, on GDP uh, in Lebanon.
1: Are people still only allowed to withdraw a certain amount of money from their bank accounts each month? Is there, are there still limits on withdrawals?
7: There are limits. We're talking about $300 a month. Uh, savings, uh, as you probably know, have been uh, trapped uh, in the banking system for more than five years now. Uh, this is why uh, tourism and the tourism sector plays an important role in whatever foreign currency is available for the domestic economy to keep on going.
1: Goodness me. Um, yeah. I, 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 there's, and there's no end in sight, I suppose. That, that's, the, that's the most depressing element of, of the conversation.
7: Uh, definitely. I mean, we've already, I mean, the economy has already been suffering from a crisis that has uh, never been experienced anywhere else in the world. And the World Bank is saying that this is one of the uh, most severe crises worldwide since the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, so things are, uh, with what has been happening since October 7, uh, the uh, economy is, has took a, a another major hit uh, and things do not look good as a result of the fact that the crisis in, in Gaza is dragging and uh, the clashes in South Lebanon are expanding on a daily basis. Our, the, the, the situation is deteriorating in South Lebanon.
1: My understanding from what I follow in Lebanese politics is that there still isn't a, a solid government in Beirut. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, am I right in thinking that the IMF won't give any money, won't, won't provide a loan yet?
7: We can't say that we have a government. It's not that whether we have a solid or uh, a good government. We do not have a government. The government has been totally paralyzed as a result result of the crisis. And uh, we do not have a president. Uh, The uh, Lebanese parliament could not elect a president uh, for the past uh, year or so. Uh, So there is no government. There is no president. And any deal with the IMF needs a president to sign on that deal. Uh, So uh, five years uh, into the crisis, uh, there is no solution in sight. The reforms that the IMF had asked us to do, uh, none has been implemented. Uh, Even if we reach a deal with the IMF, there is no no government and no president uh, to ratify the deal.
1: Professor Simon Naomi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on the agenda with that very uh, clear uh, summary of the situation in Lebanon at the moment. Uh, Simon's a professor of economics at the American University of Beirut. Thank you very much indeed for your time. We're actually going to turn our attention to our sports news now, our latest headlines. Our editor, Chris McCarty, has basically been glued to his TV screen for all the live action this morning. Thank you for this report, Chris.
0: Very good morning, Georgia. Happy Tuesday. And yes, let's get straight into the sport. Let's start by looking back on last night before we start talking what we've got to look forward to today. And let's start with the African Cup of Nations. I am of course talking football, Big, dramatic night of action last night in Egypt, minus Mohamed Salah, their talismanic figure. He's back in Liverpool undergoing treatment on that hamstring injury that he picked up the other day. But a 93rd minute equaliser against Cape Verde ensures that Egypt, the Pharaohs, multiple winners of the African Cup of Nations, they have reached the last 16 and it could well be at the expense of the two-time champions, Ghana, because they were leading 2-0 against Mozambique, two stoppage-time goals from the aforementioned Mozambique. So Ghana draw, and their place now in the last 16... Is in serious serious threat the same can also be said for the host nation ivory coast they were beaten a chastening defeat by equatorial guinea four goals to nil ivory coast have had an absolute nightmare in their home tournament they've lost two of their three group games and they face a nervous wait now to see if they will be one of the lucky losers a third place team to reach the last 16 so that's the african cup of nations as for the asian cup it's taking place over in qatar and there's a biggie a little later this evening palestine taking on our very own united arab emirates we know what is going on politically of course in palestine and well for uae they'll be looking to put all of that to one side they've got business to look ahead to tonight they've got to get victory to ensure that they secure a place in the knockout stages so a big night of action last night and a big night in the football to look forward to a little later. As for the tennis, well, Novak Djokovic, he is on court. He's bidding for yet another Grand Slam semi final appearance. A little earlier this morning, we saw Coco Golf. She's in fine form, the US Open champion. She is into the semi finals. A three sets victory for the young American. Robbie Greenfield's pick to go all the way down there at Melbourne Park uh, this year. The Australian Open heating up nicely. A little later, we've got Yannick Sinner taking on the Russian Andrei Rublev. You could make a very good case to say that Yannick Sinner, the young Italian, has been the most impressive performer at the Australian Open thus far and he will be looking to secure a last four berth. The other big story in the world of sport, confirmation yesterday that Virat Kohli, the Indian cricketing superstar, he is set to miss the first two tests against England. It all gets underway. That five-match test series in Hyderabad on Thursday, Virat Kohli has actually asked Rohit Sharma, his skipper, if he could step down for personal reasons. Uh, It's all a little cloak and dagger. He has said that an issue requires his undivided attention. Make of that what you will. But we do hope to see Virat Kohli back lining up for India in that third test. Harris Brooke as well. He's also been forced out for England. He's headed back to the UK for personal reasons. So that gets you bang up to with the live sporting action. The Australian Open is ongoing. As I say, the cricket, that's a biggie, India against England begins on Thursday and you've got all the footy to look forward to as well but that gets you bang up to date for now Georgia we'll catch up again tomorrow
1: Chris McCarty thank you very much indeed the agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m till 1 p.m